All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Way It Is. And I'm your host, Luke Andalfado. And uh, today I am uh, very grateful to have the time and attention of uh, Mr. Chris Seep. And uh, Chris is a published author of two books on landlording. Uh, an instructor of a 36-hour landlording course. Uh, He's the president of the Landlords Association of Durham and a hands-on owner-operator of seven quote-unquote missing middle apartment buildings totaling 71 units. His many housing and real estate-related articles have been published in various national media. And uh, I dare say he's uh, he's an expert in the field. So with that being said, uh, welcome, Chris. Well, thank you for inviting me. Well, and and I'm I'm glad to have you. As I said, because um, my my audience and and my clients and and those that know me know that I've been doing this for for far too long. And uh, during the time that I've been doing it, I uh, I haven't I own and operate a property management company. And I've done that uh, parallel to my real estate career. It sort of started uh, by osmosis, a bit of an after-sales service, if you will, and uh, and then grown into its own sort of entity. And uh, and I deal with a lot of landlords, a lot of investors, myself included. I've I've bought and sold investment properties. I've owned several, liquidated some, added others. Uh, so and and um, you know, going at your on your website, uh, I was refreshing to read everything that basically I've experienced. Uh, in terms of uh, you know the school of hard knocks, the school of learning as you go, and 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 all the the trials and tribulations. So yeah, so thank you for coming. Um, uh, so I, I think I'll just start um, with the topic, or just the generic entry into the, the conversation about why people become landlords, and and in today's market especially, because I know you've seen it as well as I do that people get to become landlords sometimes for all the wrong reasons. So I'll, I'll let you elaborate on that then in terms of your experiences. So. Well, I think there's a general um, perception that uh, becoming a landlord uh, is the road to wealth. And there is an element of that for sure. But when I speak to my, my clients and the people that I've been involved with, I, I let them know that they're not creating uh, liquidity. In fact, uh, the, the wealth is asset wealth. And you've often heard, I'm asset rich, but cash poor. Yes. And that is very true in this business, right? Uh, you, your average 12 plex might generate net net into your pocket $15,000. It could generate somewhere around 150000 in total revenue in a 12 plex, let's say. Uh, but the money that goes into your pocket after all the taxes, after all the expenses and all the financing is maybe around 15 grand. You can't live on that. No one can. It's below the poverty line. So, uh, but on the other hand, if I do all the right things, and we may talk about some of those things that we could do to improve the value of a property, then uh, the appreciative value of that property over the long term is what creates your retirement income or whatever your goal is to create that wealth. Yes, no, exactly that point. And, and I found, though, you know, myself, and even, you know, given the strength of the market over the, or during the pandemic, and even now we've seen a January, you know, uh, unlike one I've, I've never seen, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons we talked about last week on, on last week's podcast. But um, 
the, the comment often becomes now, I guess the question becomes, is it, are the market variables still conducive to buying a good investment property, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion, I get, I, I've taught this course for six years, and uh, my answer is there's never a bad time to buy an investment property because it's not about the timing. It's not about interest rates. Uh, it's, it's not about government legislation necessarily either. The overarching driving principle behind the acquisition of a real estate investment property, especially a residential property, uh, is whether or not it will cash flow positive based on the, on the current metrics of the property and its performance today. In other words, if it, if it can pay all of the operational expenses, if it can pay all the financing and it leaves you something extra, no matter what the market is, the cap rates could be at, oh, and maybe we'll talk about capitalization rates, but cap rate could be at 7%, which means that the value of your property is very low relative to your expenses. Uh, and uh, uh, in a different market environment, that could mean that it doesn't cash flow positive. But if you can get the property at the proper cap rate, based on the interest rates that prevail at the time, lock in those financials for five years, like most people do. I never do variable loans with investment properties, never. To me, that's hmm. just too risky. Uh, then there's never a bad time to buy. But you start to touch on something else I want to uh, mention. The, the value of properties, especially single-family homes, uh, you know, the haves who have real estate, uh, have seen an incredible increase in the net worth of our properties. And that's empowered us to... Um, that, that's, that's increased the spread between the uh, mortgage that we owe and the value of the property. So banks are much more secure in their mortgages because of that increased spread. But it's also made it possible for us to go and pull money out of that property. Hence, this whole new concept of uh, the bank of mom and dad. Mm -hmm. So because their properties have increased by 20 or 25 percent over the last two years and the kids can't buy a property themselves, they're going back into the equity that was created for us, not by us, but for us by the government to go and borrow that money to go and buy another property. So the gap between the haves and have-nots have increased dramatically because of failed housing policies of the government, in my opinion. Yeah, no, no, I, and, and uh, excellent point. And, and, and I, I may come into that end a little bit later on. But uh, so, you know, early, in, early on, and um, uh, certainly happy to have the argument or debate or, 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 hear your, or hear your opinion, but certainly I know from my perspective Leverage is key. And, you know, in given exactly what you just said, where a client may have their own personal residence, and that's mm -hmm. probably the best example uh, they have now recently in the last 24 months, a significant amount of instantly made equity in the property. They can finance, refi take that equity out um, at exceptionally low rates and use that as their now capital to go and secure an investment property. And I find the struggle that some people have with that is they lose sight of the fact that they're, 
essentially 100% financing the purchase of an investment property, and they're disappointed when it's still not cash flowing the way that they feel it should cash flow. And I have to set them back and I have to say, well, you're actually cash flowing really well because yeah. you haven't used any of your own capital on this project or anything That's like right. that. Yeah. And there's a difference between uh, the return on uh, investment and the metrics that we use for, for measuring or uh, the ratios that we use for measuring that uh, versus cash on cash. So how much cash I put in, how much am I getting back? So there are two different measurements. I mean, they're related and they both reflect uh, how well you're doing in terms of the, of the money that you get back. But uh, as you say, many investors don't understand those measurements very well. In fact, I would I would say that the vast majority do not. So if you don't mind, and certainly not to steal, you know, uh, potential people from taking your course or anything no, like no, that, no. but, but let's, let's, let's dive into these, the, the three differences then, because you, you, we've, we've skirted around it now and, 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 uh, you know, um, so return on investment, cash on cash, and of course, capitalization rates, because right. the three don't necessarily mean the same thing when it, to an investor. They're all, they're all interrelated. And when I teach the course, again, not to promote it, but yeah. you know, just to tell you that uh, I've been doing it for a while, um, I, I have a spreadsheet and it actually uh, calculates about 20 different variables, 20 different ratios. And there are maybe five that are key decision makers for me and they're all interrelated, but they will fluctuate. And the fluctuation in those different ratios tells me whether or not it's a dud uh, whether or not it's cash flowing negative, but it's something I could turn around, which is the greatest opportunities that we're looking for. Those are the ones where, you know, the previous owner is saying, I'm not making enough money. I'm getting out of this. Uh, but they don't realize that they could do these 30 things and turn a property around. I bought a property two years ago, May of 2019, 25 plex, uh, for three point zero seven so almost 3.1 million dollars and two years later we've added a million dollars to the value of the property just by doing certain things and it's actually related to this uh concept of net operating income divided by cap rate right, right. And, uh, and that's really the essence it's called the direct capitalization method it's what cra uses all the lenders use it mpac in particular use it if you don't know MPAC, that's the Municipal Property Assessment Corporation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and they all use that to determine the value of a property, mostly to determine how much tax they're going to charge you, because that tax is based on the value of the property, not, the, uh, not necessarily uh, the potential income of that property. Right? Mm -hmm. um, did you want me to sort of talk a little bit about NOI and cap rate? Because Please, yeah. so, uh, as I mentioned, CRA, MPAC, all the lenders and so on use this concept or this, this method of accounting called the direct capitalization method. Uh, realtors call it the income approach versus comparison right. or cost approach, right? Uh, and the, the fundamental underpinning of this approach is what's referred to as NOI or net operating income. And the NOI. Uh, are all those things that you have to spend monthly, daily, or yearly, but they're recurring expenses, and they're called operating expenses. This is different mm -hmm. from capital expenses, such as replacing a boiler or, or a roof or windows or something, okay? 
So a simple right. example uh, is what I've uh, put on the screen here of property taxes, building insurance, repairs, all the utilities that one would have, uh, property maintenance, uh, uh, management fees and so on, snow plowing, that would all go into here and you would calculate that, add it up. In this simple example, it adds up to 30,500. And uh, this might be an eight unit property. So it's generating about $75,000 in total income, leaving you with uh, a NOI before taxes of 44.5. Now, that's the simple part. The hard part is understanding what this, this concept is called capitalization rate. And I take six hours to explain that. So we're not going to really have the time here uh, no, to do that. Fair enough. We don't know exactly where it comes from. but you, I mean, I know where it comes from. But like I said, it would take much more time than we have here. But if you think of it in the simplest terms, as a buyer, you're saying, I could put my money into the bank and I might get a 1% return on my account. But if I put my money into real estate, what kind of return could I get? And in the market right now, two years ago, outside of Toronto, in what we call the 905-705 area code band, if you will, around the city, those properties were trading at between 45 and 5%. Mm -hmm. Today, those properties are trading around 3%, and some of them as low as 2%, 2% which yeah. means that there, there's almost no return on the investment. So the people who are buying them are buying them in the hopes that they will appreciate in value like a house does. And it doesn't work like that. Because as yes. you'll see, the value of a home, of, of a, an investment property, only increases if the net operating income e- increases. So if you can add $1,000 to your income without adding any expense, I have a saying that says for every $1 of, of NOI, you can enjoy $20 of equity. $1 of NOI is $20 of joy. And that's based on a five cap. And if right. that cap rate drops, then the return is even higher. And I'm going to show you that. So sure. simplistically, you think of it as return on investment. And if you want to try and remember the formula, ask Irv or ask Irving. And right. That little triangle that you see on the screen, it's captured on video, so I won't you know, get into it in, in a lot sure. of detail, okay? But let's take a very simple example. So I take that 44000 I divide that by what the market says the return, uh, the return on investment should be. And the market was saying 5%, which means all things being equal, nothing else has changed, right? The crime rate's the same. The building hasn't moved. The tenant <laughs> demographics haven't changed right? The same amenities. But I'm expecting as because I've got financing, for example, I need a 5% return. That means that that 44,500, it makes the property worth about 890,000. But because of the tremendous pressures of high demand and low supply, you're getting more and more people who are willing to take less and less return, because they can't find these properties anywhere especially the missing middle properties. So they're saying, I want a four cap or 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 the, sorry, the buyers are saying, I want a five cap, but the seller's saying, I'm not going to give you a five cap because I don't have to. I'll find somebody who'll take it for four, which means they're only getting 4%, which means they, the buyer has to actually pay 1.1 million for the exact same building that would have sold, you know, a few months ago, or even, you know, 
currently with a different geography at 890. That $222,000 difference is a 25% difference in property value. And it's purely because of demand versus supply, not yes. because of the building and not because of its makeup. So if I can add $1 of noise to my property, I'll add upwards of $20. So if I take my electricity bill, I bought a building uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, uh, and I paid 890000 for it. At that time, it was a 12-plex, no, so an 11-plex. And my electricity bill was uh, $15,000. Mm -hmm. well, over the course of three years, I had sweet metered it. In other words, I put in new uh, electricity meters for every unit, and the tenants, over the course of a few years, as they moved out, the new tenants who moved in would pay their own electricity. Right. I reduced my electricity bill to today to about $365 a month. Wow. So call that uh, four grand, five grand a year. All right. Yeah. So I reduced it from 15,000 to 5,000. That $10,000 difference with that, with no expense, I paid one time $12,000. So I had the meters change, but I got that uh, um, savings of $10,000 a year. So I got my money back in less than two years, a year and a half, depending on how long it takes to turn over the tenants. But the important thing is that that 10,000 represents a $200,000 increase in the equity. And when you understand that concept between NOI and cap rate, it's really easy to understand why you should change your boiler when it's only 85% efficient. Right. If I can save three grand on my gas bill, three grand times 12 is 3,600 times 20 is $72,000 because right. I can't order, right? So that's what I want to talk about here. Uh, and I'll give you back your screen. Yeah, no, no, that's, and those are excellent points because I think too many people get caught up in the sort of here and now and can't see past just a cash flow, right? Like or a cash on cash yeah. scenario. That's exactly right. They think about today and they'll say, well, I'm only making 15,000 a year on this property. There's no way I'm going to spend $19,000 to buy a new boiler. Well, if yeah. you spent the 19,000 and you save three grand and you add 72,000 to the value of property, you'll get that back in five years when you refinance. Right. And yes. that's the key. Or when you sell the property, one or the other. So um, I know back in the day uh, and now, like you said, this seems to be more the norm where people are banking on appreciable value as a return. And yeah. that really has no place in investing. Am I right? Or, or? Uh, no, it has a place in investment, but it depends on what your goals are. If you're trying to create wealth, uh, you may prefer to be a house flipper because you can get that return very quickly. To me, that's huge risk. The reason I did it is because I know I will get that money eventually, but it's a long-term play. And every property that I buy uh, and refinance, even though I could get fantastic rates at a 10-year, I only do five-year fixed closed mortgages. Because right. at the end of five years, I want to uh, recover some of that sweat equity that I put into the property. So every five years, and if I own seven properties, once a year, I will have a property that will be refinanced, and I'll be able to pull out some money. So in that first property I talked about where we've got a million dollar upside, when that comes due in another year and a half, 
I'll be able to pull out three quarters of that, basically, right? You talked about leverage. What you don't want to do is over leverage. And right. that is the incredible danger. That's the house of cards that kills so many investors because they lose sight of the fact that interest rates can rise and kill them. Right. Um, so I, I, I shudder to even bring this up now, but we live in a world where, um, or in Ontario, especially, right. uh, or specifically, where, um, and I, I'm sure you're in the camp where, I mean, the, the, the legislation that exists and the landlord tribunal that exists um, is heavily weighted in favor of tenants. And, and that's only gotten worse over the years. Uh, yeah. And not to say that, and I, I've, I've talked about this in previous podcasts and, and I speak about it to, to investors and my landlords all the time. I mean, you know, there's good and bad operators as landlords, but then there's good and bad op, you know, sure. operators as tenants and, and, and there's never any guarantees, but you have to be careful. But certainly the landlord tenant situation, well, over the pandemic became untenable. Um, no so maybe you could speak to some tips or some things that you've done or seen that to sort of mitigate the, the fact that you can't evict a tenant anymore, essentially. <laughs> for, well, uh, I, I wanted to speak to the first half of your comment uh, about because tenants constantly, you know, the rhetoric from tenants and tenant advocates is that the uh, tenancy legislation is so biased towards landlords. But I want to put that in perspective. There are 46 potential breaches of the Residential Tenancies Act. Out of the 46, 34 of them uniquely benefit the tenant to the detriment of the landlord. There are 10 that are balanced. You know, uh, what's good for him is good for her kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there is one remaining breach that uniquely benefits the landlord. So out of that 46, one, and then someone, if they do the math, they'll say, well, what's the other one? And the last one has nothing to do with landlords or tenants. It's a piece of legislation that politicians put into the Residential Tenancies Act that says that uh, landlords cannot kick a canvassing politician off the property. Now, what that's got to do with landlords and tenants, I don't know. But you obviously know why it's there. It's self-serving, right? <laughs> exactly. So, uh, you know, when you when you talk about uh, uh, imbalances or, you know, that that landlord, uh, sorry, that when tenants say that landlords have it all, uh, it can be it could not be further from the truth. In terms of protecting yourself, um, the two things that that I've done religiously since I've gotten into this business, which are by far the um, greatest techniques that you could use for protecting yourself against bad tenant behavior uh, and worse, uh, tenants who don't pay their rent. The first is I have a very robust lease. Long before the standard uh, uh, tenancy agreement came around that Ontario published in 2018, uh, I already had a strong one. And then when they uh, brought that out, they left, uh, I think it's section 17, could be 15, 15 or 17, of that standard lease says you can add clauses. Yes. I've added 78 because that's how unbalanced the, the uh, standard Ontario tenancy agreement is. It's missing all kinds of stuff 
that we as landlords need in order to make sure that the relationship is properly defined between landlords and tenants. The other thing that I do religiously, and it is a uh, constant irritant almost, is that uh, I have a 22-point process for qualifying my tenants. And I'm getting wow. more tenants now than I've ever had before. I get on average 200 inquiries uh, per vacancy, and I'll get seven to 10 applications per vacancy. And uh, the vast majority of them are don't meet my qualification process. Right. And it's from large, uh, from long experience of dealing with all kinds of vagaries of law. And uh, if I could, I want to I want to give a perfect example in case there's ever a politician listening to your podcast. <laughs> Please, absolutely. Yeah. Anyone that stays in my building for more than three years or any investment property, period, anywhere in Ontario that stays for more than three years is devastating the economic return of that property. They're destroying the equity. And who are the people that are going to stay the longest? The two demographic groups are seniors, who once they move in after 60 are very unlikely to move, for example, mm -hmm. and anyone that's on some kind of a government program, ODSP, OW, and so on. Because once they get in, they never get enough money to ever be able to get out as the rent increases. And they don't want to move. So let me, if, if you have a senior who moves into a one bedroom and they pay $1,000 a month today, if they can find one, but to keep the number simple, yes. uh, 10 years from now, they're still there and they're paying $1,200 a month. But the market's at 1500 And we saw that just in the last two years, let alone exactly. 10 years. But they, they've moved in and uh, and the market is now at 1500 because the costs of everything have gone through the roof. That $300 difference may not seem like much, and that's our obligation to society as landlords, you know, contributing because we're better off than the tenants are as a general rule of thumb, theoretically. Uh, that $300 difference times 12 is 3600 times 20, again, means we've lost $72,000 in equity because that tenant is not paying the market rents, but we're still paying market expenses. Now, if you have a building, a 10 unit building with 10 seniors in it who never move, you've lost three quarters of a million, which is probably all of the equity that you would have ever earned from that property for all the time that you've owned it. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I tell you, do not well, you, you learn from that. You tell me what the, the, what the moral is, because it's against the law to say, don't rent to this group or that group. But we're driven by two things. As far as I'm concerned, 85% of, of all the challenges, all the issues that arise between a landlord and a tenant or a tenant and the property manager comes down to two things. I want the rent paid in full on time, and I want the tenant to respect the property and their neighbors. And I'll bet most of anything that you can think of as a conflict come down to those two points. And I don't, I don't think about race or religion or color or source of income. I only think about those two things. And the government doesn't. And this, yes. is, where our, this is where our challenges are because they don't understand. No, no, I, 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 I 
100% agree with you. And I, I thank, thank you for making those salient oh, points. I get a little bit, uh, you know. Oh, animated. No, no, I, I believe me. Wow. I know it. I, I get, well, and, and, and in the last two years, uh, it became, um, you know, the, the, I'm sure you've heard it in your market area, but the, the, the saying became, uh, cash for keys yeah. in order of trying yeah. to vacate units. And that happened right? in the seventies as well. The right. very same thing happened, cash for keys. Uh, you know, janitors would say, look, I'll move you up the list if you give me a hundred bucks. Right. Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about, uh, getting, no, rid I'm of talking about getting rid of tenant and, okay. and essentially well, offering them, yeah. you know, offering them two or three or four months of rent or sometimes six months of rent. I mean, I just went through it with a landlord where it became. Well, let's, so let's use exactly what I was just talking about in 30 seconds. So that tenant's paying $900 a month. And I have quite a few tenants like that. And the market is now at 1500 because of, you know, all the reasons that people talk yeah. about that's $600 a month time. And you would say, okay, well, I've got to pay for five months. That's $3,000. I don't want to pay them $3,000 to get out, which is what most landlords would think, but that's really short sighted. And that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how this, how these things work. If you take that uh, $3,000 that you spent and you compare it to, okay, now I'm getting $600 more a month. So after six months, I will have gotten that money back with a new tenant. But more importantly, that six times 12 is $7,200 times 20, dollars $150,000, give or take. So by paying them $3,000 or five months of rent, which gives them an opportunity to find something else maybe, and they're cash rich, relatively speaking. Yes. You've added $140,000 to the value of your property each time you turn over one of those tenants. And that's not landlords. That's the government. And what's driving that? Rent control. Right. Exactly. Right? So this is yeah. what rent control is doing. It's yeah. not us. We would not be able to do this if the government hadn't passed rent control that, uh, that created this situation where cash for keys uh, has become so pervasive. Yes. No, no. Um, so getting onto the topic of in your mind or in your opinion, um, you know, you've discussed, you've alluded to the fact that you own multi-residential unit buildings. Yep. Um, I, I know a lot of clients just buy single family homes, a town home or a semi-detached or something like that yep. as an investment in, in, in your mind. Uh, you know, what is the optimum vehicle, I guess, if someone was to say, hey, tomorrow I'm going to become a landlord. I'm going to look at to buying an investment well, property. I mean, single-family homes, uh, the process I've just described for uh, figuring out the value of a home is not quite the same for a single-family home because single-family homes have a tremendous amount of emotional appeal. So on the one hand, if you looked at the income versus the expenses, that home might only be worth $850,000. But because of the emotional uh, aspects of buying and selling a single family home, someone might come along and say, I'll pay you a million. So the investment criteria doesn't always work that well. The ideal world is you own your home and you rent out your basement or your attic or something like that. We call them second suites. There are other yes. names for it. But, you know, most people call them second suites. And the bank will consider the income from that basement as part of offsetting the mortgage. So the value of the home appreciates because of the income that's generating. 
And if you put solar panels on top, then you've got even uh, not more income, but you're saving expense. And if you can, gen if you can demonstrate that you saved, I don't know what, $200 a month on electricity times 12, $2,400 mm -hmm. a year, that is something that will be factored in. The problem with single family homes, which is why I've never bought any, is because the banks will not finance beyond a certain number. And typically that's about five. And they discount the houses as you move up because they're concerned that too much of your personal income is coming from those houses. However, if you own an apartment building, a small one, fourplex, sixplex, whatever, and you put it into a company, each of those companies has to stand on their own merit. And the banks will look at them on their own merit. And if you own a few single family homes, uh, the banks will be far more accommodating to you if you do a mix. So if you've got a couple of single family homes and a fourplex or a sixplex or an eightplex, they, they like that much better because there's some diversification, even though you're still in real estate. Um, and while I'm thinking about it, before I forget, you asked uh, near the beginning of the program about uh, why people should still invest in this. And, and I've been getting that question so much, I almost have it down to, uh, you know, rhetoric. And that is, uh, I thought about with all the problems that I have, shouldn't I just sell and live off of the money? And some landlords have done that, haven't really thought it through. The problem is, is what do you do with that money once you've got it? Right? Right. What are you going to invest in? And more importantly, when we're facing hyperinflation, between 1980 and 1990, the average U.S. citizen lost 50% of the total value of their savings. If they put that money into a bank, half of it was gone because of failed government policies you know, over a decade. Right. We're in that same situation now. And let me remind you that the person who was in power in 1981 when interest rates went to 21%, is the father of the same person who's in power now as our interest rates start to climb. Right. So don't be surprised if we see uh, interest rates rise. Now, I know the banks have held back, but it's going to be devastating for anybody that has financing. Yeah. New financing won't be a problem. But if you go from 2% to 4%, you'd say, well, 4% is still below you know, the market for 100 right. years. No. If I pay $11,000 a month in principal and interest on one building. If it goes from 2% to 4%, and I have to pay $22,000 a month now. Yes. I didn't get an increase in my income to cover that. Right. So if I don't have enough equity in the property, I'm cash flowing negative, and I could be in serious trouble. And anybody that bought a property with only 10 or 15% down could be facing the very same problem when they refinance. It's not new property purchases, it's the refinancing that's going to devastate. Right. And, and let's segue into that because, um, you know, bank policies have changed uh, over the last several years. It's becoming harder and harder to secure financing. I mean, let's face it, my, my comment always is the person you're dealing with, I mean, doesn't have any more authority to approve your loan than the, the, asking to go to the bathroom. I mean, it has to go way up the food chain and you have to, you have somebody in an ivory tower and if you don't meet all the, if all the boxes aren't checked, then the thing gets flagged or whatever. But right. I know, I know in and my experience, it's taking four months to approve stuff as well, which is killing deals. Right. But I guess my comment was I always, for me, right or wrong, 
I always tried to avoid CMHC or MCAP uh, or, you know, those underwriters, because that's expensive money. And that to me, you'd almost be better off trying to go into the private sector to try to secure a private, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to hear your yeah. thoughts on, on, on that, on those components there. So, well, uh, it depends on the lenders you're with. Most of the banks are trying to talk you out of dealing with CMHC because they don't, first of all, they don't want to deal with all the paperwork, uh, and all the issues to qualify uh, a tenant. They, they, meaning the mainstream banks, are just as capable as MPAC, or not MPAC, CMHC, is in determining whether a lender is a, a borrower's a valid risk. They don't need CMHC for that. So, and, and the second reason is that they keep that upside because their interest rates are based on their internal uh, treasury rate, not the Bank of Canada rate. So, if you uh, want to get true leverage and low interest rates, you really need to find a lender who loans you money based on a certain number of basis points, which is one hundredth of a percentage, right? Um, and typically, that's typically eighty-five to ninety-five basis points above the ten-year Canada bond rate. So, whatever the bond rate is today, let's say it's one percent then that lender on that day will loan you the money that you're asking for, typically a 75% loan to value, 75% they loan you and 25% you put down as a down payment. And, uh, and they will loan that to you at 1.9%. And that target moves all the time. But once they do that, it's locked in for five years. Mm -hmm. But none of those people who work on that uh, basis points above uh, bond prime will do it without CMHC coverage. So yeah, it's expensive money, but my interest rates are still low. And to give you an example, last August, it's it's not this way today, interest rates are great. So, but last August, I refinanced uh, a property at 1.67 with a 35-year amortization period. Wow. Right? And the cap rate was 4.2. That's that's a phenomenal deal. Absolutely. And it's yeah. still better than uh, most of the deals that were prevalent at that time. And if I went to that same supplier today, I know that my interest rates and, and the terms and conditions would still be more attractive than the banks. But they're hard to find and they won't do single family homes. Right? Yeah. They want to do the bigger properties. So I don't really have a simple answer for you with respect to your question about CMHC costing more. It guarantees that the, the principle behind it is that because the mortgage is guaranteed, you should get the most attractive interest rate possible. But because right. interest rates are so low, the spread isn't worth the difference in the interest that you save. Maybe right. you get a quarter point, right? 1.75 instead of two. Um, but when interest rates were at five, you could get loans at one at three and a half. Yes. That's where it made sense. Today it yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I just found the pre yeah, and I found the premiums just punitive, you know what I'm saying? Because I think they raised their thresholds. I think now it's four and a half percent or something like that. And well that's part of it. It's not so much punitive as it is they're trying they are a for profit corporation, unlike yes almost all of the government agencies that are supposed to be revenue neutral or profit neutral, CMHC is for profit because they underwrite 
they used to underwrite almost 50% of the total uh, residential investment properties out there. And because of stupidity on the part of you know, recent management, they've lost almost 15% of that market share. Uh, but the but the whole point was is if you have a catastrophic event like 2008 in the U.S., mm-hmm. CHC would cover that. Yes. While they're now in a position where they've lost so much market share that they are not getting enough premiums to be able to cover the risk of the portfolio that they're insuring. So right. yeah, it's it, you, you think of it as punitive, but it's really protecting your tax dollars. But they should never have been in that situation in the first place. Yes. No, right? fair enough. They created this mess. They blew their brains out. And now they want us to pay for their, well, oh, big surprise. Right? Yes, now exactly. they want us to pay for these mistakes. Exactly. Um, oh. Well, Chris, I, 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 I don't want to keep you any longer than, than I have to. And we've had a great conversation, I, I guess, in, um, and not to put you on the spot, but I guess if... And I'm going to have your uh, your website, uh, uh, the link on my site uh, after this, and uh, share it with everyone. DrLandlord.ca, correct? That's the well. Uh, it actually it, points to my real estate website, but that's how people remember. Dr. Land, DrLandlord.ca. Yeah. No, no, and 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 I I encourage I'll encourage everyone to go there and 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 even look at consider the course. I'm actually considering it myself, actually, as just as, even as a not only just a refresher, but I'm sure there's things I'd learn for sure. Just given the brief conversation we have, I, I you your tremendous knowledge is is is, is, is incredible. Um, I guess one final parting comment: what what you know because you get asked these questions all the time. What what's what's sort of the first thing that's top of mind when someone says I'm thinking about investing in real estate? What's what's your first sort of knee jerk reaction to that or comment that you? Uh, well, usually I address that again in the course. It's the first thing I talk about: ten reasons to be a landlord and forty reasons not to be. So <laughs> I don't have uh, you know a really simple answer, but if I was going to sort of summarize it, I would say uh, you've got to be. Uh, willing to be immersed in people problems, right? Because without that, it will drive you crazy and yes. emotionally drain you, make you sick if you're, if yes. you're thin skin, for example. You've got to know the law because if you don't, I guarantee to you, you will become a victim of it. Yes. It is so heavily tenant biased. And when tenants come to you and say, I know my rights, you have to be able to say, I know your rights and I know my rights too. And if you want to take it to the wall, I'm prepared to do that, but hopefully we won't have to go that far. And the third thing is, if you really want to create wealth, you've got to understand the metrics that the banks, the lenders, you know, the insurance companies, they all use the same, you know, uh, basic uh, melting pot of ratios to determine the value of a property. If you understand how that works, then your decisions on the financial side become much, much easier. Much yeah. easier. You don't have to win every battle with a tenant. Even though you know the tenant's wrong, you can say, okay, look, I'll pay the $200. You paint the place, and I'll pay for the paint. You know, yes. something like that. But some landlords, they will fight tooth and nail for that $200. No. And it is not good for business. No, I, I agree. I, yeah. And, and I, I, I. The other things, but those are. You no, no. And I. I, I I appreciate that, and and uh, I won't call out any landlords, but you you know they're like 
you experience. There's there's those that are, uh, you know, have the foresight and see the sort of beyond here, and then there's those that just get caught up in the minutia of the stuff and don't see the the bigger picture thing. Exactly. But uh, exactly, and the big picture here is buy the property, fix it up, increase the equity, and refinance. That Correct. to me is the ultimate savings plan for retirement. Yes. No. And it's also a great way to start a um, uh, a, a starting point for your kids. If they can understand what it is that you're doing, the, the, the great families of developers that are out there, it was the grandfather that started it. It was the father that built it. And it's the great, and it's the grandson that's taken it to, you know, it's new levels. Right. Yeah. Families like that. And I'm hoping I'm the first generation in my, you know, one of my kids will pick up. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I I hope they do too. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for uh, sharing it with us. Um, And uh, I will, I will post uh, all your information on my site and also we'll send you the link to the podcast when it goes live on, we drop it on Thursday and uh, yeah. All the best. Good luck in 2022. And uh, thanks again. Really appreciate your time, Chris. Thank you. Stay safe, Lucas. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to have another conversation about anything. Well, I, you know what? I've got your contact details now. And, and don't be surprised if I reach out by email every now and again with a question or a comment or just want to bounce something to off you. And your and your viewers as well. If, if it's too long to answer in an email, I'll tell them, I'll call them or they can call me. I'm yeah. happy to help. I'm, you know, I'm not looking for money. I just really want better landlords out there. We're our well, worst enemies. And, <laughs> we are sometimes that for sure. All right. Well, thanks very much, Chris. Have a great rest of the day. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye.